where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Welcome back to The Messy Intersection. I am your host, Diana, and I am a registered dietitian and a mom of two young girls who you will hear more about in this episode. And I am just really, really excited for you to listen to this episode because this is a show about starting solids with your baby, but it ends up being a lot more than that. It ends up being a discussion of child feeding on the whole and really parenting on the whole. So I really hope that you enjoy it. And if starting solids is something that is on your horizon, uh, you have a new baby, definitely stick around to the end of the episode because I'm going to be sharing with you some additional resources uh, to get you some support on this whole starting solids deal. And if you're not starting solids, but you've liked what you've heard on the podcast so far, I still hope you'll stick around for the show because we are going to be talking about lots more than just starting solids. We're going to talk about responsive feeding. We're going to talk about self-care when you're a mom. We're going to talk about the issues that come up when a parent is trying to diet, but also trying to help their kids have a healthy relationship with food. So honestly, I, I wouldn't have thought that all of that would have come up in a conversation about starting solids, but if there is one person in that I know that could make that happen. It is my friend and colleague, Yafi Lavova, and I am really excited to have her on the show today and to highlight her work. So with that, my guest today is Yafi Lavova. Yafi is a registered dietitian nutritionist, and after a difficult journey toward and into motherhood, Yafi became a mother to twins plus one and used her experience and clinical knowledge to shift gears and provide nutrition education to new and expecting parents helping smooth the transition into parenthood. She is the founder of Baby Bloom Nutrition and Toddler Test Kitchen, as well as the author of the Stage-by-Stage Baby Food Cookbook, the Nourishing Baby Food Cookbook, and the forthcoming Fun with Food Toddler Cookbook. And she also hosts the podcast, Naptime Nutrition. So as always, the content on the show is for informational purposes only and not a substitute for professional medical advice. And the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. Let's hear from Yafi. Hello, Yafi. Welcome to the Messy Intersection. Thank you so much for having me, Diana. I'm super excited to be on. Me too. I love your work and I'm really excited about this topic we're going to be chatting about today. But before we dive into that, I would love for our guests just to get to know you a little bit more. Tell us about yourself. Well, my name is Yafi. I live in Chandler, Arizona with my seven-year-old twins and four-year-old little all boys little guy. I am totally hashtag outnumbered. Uh, I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and I focus on community nutrition. My specific focus is on pediatric and family nutrition, everything from pregnancy through toddlerhood and just beyond. And when there isn't a pandemic, I'm teaching Toddler Test Kitchen, which is my cooking class for kids ages two through six, usually at the Farm South Mountain in the Phoenix area. And I I just love getting information out there that help people feel more confident in feeding their kids and feel less stressed and guilty around all of those really controversial subjects. Yes, and that is why you and I get along so well, because I am all about those same things. And on that subject, actually, I always like to keep it real here. So you and I could spew advice all day about, you know, best practices of feeding kids, but that doesn't mean that we don't like struggle with feeding our kids. <laughs> so to kind of set the tone here, Yafi, tell me, what is the most challenging part of feeding your own kids? Honestly, I do have a kid who's a little bit selective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that I'm hit with certain obstacles because it's helped to shape my practice. You know, I was hit with infertility and a high-risk pregnancy with twins and tongue tie and lip tie and allergies and all this stuff. And I just think it informs my practice. It helps me to be compassionate for other parents who are going through the same thing. And I really want people to know, just as you said, just because we're experts doesn't mean we're not also dealing with these issues. We just know an appropriate way to approach it so that it doesn't become a longstanding issue and instead stays a phase that it's supposed to be. But my little guy, who's my selective picky eater, he will starve himself if there isn't something that he likes on the table. So that whole thing, they won't starve themselves. No, he proves that wrong. And a lot of kids actually do. They, there are children who won't eat anything um, unless 
there's something safe on the table. And that's, you know, we come from that angle when we're counseling people to always have something safe on the table. But yeah, that, that is a challenge that I have. And my twins regularly change their minds on foods that they like, something they loved the week before. They say, no, this isn't my favorite anymore. And that's a natural, normal thing for kids. As a dietitian, I can recognize that that's natural and normal and that it isn't a problem, but that I could make it a problem by dealing mm-hmm. with it the wrong way. Yeah, definitely. I have my biggest struggle is um, my five year old is really into sweets, like really, really, really into sweets. And, you know, it's easy for us on a academic level to say, oh, allow more access. You know, the the reason the kids are obsessed with sweets is they don't have enough access. And like, I promise you this child has enough access and she's still really into them. And, you know, for me, I really have to fight that diet culture mentality of how can I get her to be less obsessed with sweets? I'm really trying to steer myself into embracing like, hey, I like chocolate too. I like cookies too. How can I help her embrace this in a healthy way. Um, I'm using the word healthy. I don't mean like make sure she's getting X amount of calories from sugar, but like in a healthy way in terms of her relationship with food, how can we have lots of sweets in our home within reason so that she still has room in her diet for the growing foods? That's my, maybe I'll do an episode on that because that is my ongoing struggle. I think that's a great thing because the thing is that even with the advice that we give the public. A lot of times we're giving the public advice that's meant for the general public and not for specific situations. And that's really the joy of working one-on-one with a dietitian is that you get to take the general advice and make it specific for you, something that works for your family. So, you know, for listeners, if there's a piece of advice that came from a reliable source and is not working for you, it might be good to touch base with someone. You know, we take the, like, if the, if the ideas in the textbooks our musical notes, then it's our job to make it into music and specific music to fit each family. And I think what you're talking about is responsive feeding, which is what (laughs) what we're going to talk about later in the episode. But that actually is really fascinating because when I started my business, I did not intend to work with people one-on-one. And now I do it pretty much three days a week, at least with with plans to scale up. And I believe that you used to see people one-on-one and you have focused more on the sort of communications element. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's just a different way to package information. And I really thrive being on stage, even virtually on stage. I really love public speaking. And I know that that's not a common (laughs) perspective. So (laughs) I'm going to chase that and let the people who love counseling chase counseling. It takes all kinds in order to educate the public in a responsible way. So I'm just going to focus on my podcast and my speaking and my writing and let those who love counseling handle the counseling. (laughs) Although I'm over here counseling with a podcast and also doing quite a lot of public speaking. And like we were talking about before we signed on, I feel like I wear too many hats. (laughs) She's like, maybe you should talk to your therapist about that. I think that we, we as moms, we're both moms. We are both working moms. We are both moms with kids during a pandemic. And I think I'm always talking to my therapist about the line where you take on too many projects as a way to manage your anxiety, or is it because you're trying to escape from the ever never ending dishes, you know, because Mm. the dishes pile up, you wash them and then they pile up again and you wash them and they pile up again and then you wash them. It's, it's like carrying a pile of bricks back and forth for no reason. Yes. And I've heard that described as the functions of being a mom or, or, or a parent are so often getting back to zero, getting the dishes mm. empty, getting the laundry put away, getting back to zero, and you're not making any progress. And so when you do have your own outlet, and I don't really want to say professional outlet because it might not be a professional outlet, but you have your own outlet, whether you're knitting an Afghan or you know something like, like it is something that goes forward in time and is makes progress and it's your own. And, and I think as you know, I do a lot of you know work with and speaking on the subject of uh, the challenges of motherhood. And that is always the advice that I keep hearing from other professionals like psychologists who, who study this kind of thing is to have your own endeavor, whatever it is that is distinct from your role as mom. I totally agree with that. And my problem is that I love my outlet so much. I love my work so much that I am willing to sacrifice doing the dishes in order to pursue (laughs) 
<laughs> something that's more meaningful to me. And it's true. It doesn't have to be a professional outlet mm -hmm. for everyone. I have other outlets as well. When I get super, super stressed out, I like to pick up my guitar and learn a new song and sing. And I post it to a specific Facebook group where people are very, very kind. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that, that controlled vulnerability counteracts my stress. Wow. But I'm just saying that to point out, it can be any kind of pursuit that just doesn't necessarily have to do with your children. Yes, absolutely. I love that. Okay, we could talk about that all day, but we're going to talk <laughs> about feeding babies, uh, which is, I mean, it really is, especially if you're a first time mom, this is the start of 17 and a half years of feeding your kids, right? And now you're probably, you're doing the breastfeeding and the formula feeding prior to that. But starting solids is a whole new ball game. So you do a lot of work with starting solids. What are some of the biggest misconceptions or maybe stumbling blocks that parents run into when starting solids? Well, I think the biggest stumbling block is listening to too much advice, honestly. <laughs> Noted. Noted. <laughs> and that's the same thing with different areas of nutrition. It's just listening to too much advice. There is a lot of advice out there. And the thing is, whenever you hear a piece of advice, the first thing you want to think of is who is, who is telling me this advice? The second thing is, do they know where I'm coming from? Do, do they understand what it means to have twins, for example? Baby led weaning with twins is a little bit different than baby led weaning with one child. You know, there are just some dynamics that are slightly different. Okay, so, so does this person know what they're talking about? Do they know my situation? And then the third thing that we were chatting about right before getting on is that you have to remember the world is a big place. And we have a lot of different cultures in a lot of different geographical locations who have survived for thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. And they all have different practices. And it's not that there aren't some pieces of advice that are hard and fast, but we did not stick around as a human species for this long by following hard and fast rules specifically ones that have no scientific basis. <laughs> I mean, we can look at different cultural practices for food introduction and compare and contrast them. And we'll see baby led weaning and we will see purees and we will see introduction at slightly different times, but there is a whole lot of overlap. And some cultures feed their kids spicier foods. Some cultures feed their kids coffee. You know, there there are different things going on around the world. And so for us in any one location to say, this right here is the answer, it, it causes more stress than it's worth. It's not necessarily backed by evidence. There is some stuff that's backed by evidence. So let's follow that instead of all of these ridiculous excess rules. How much do you think that the difficulty of being a new parent, specifically a new mom, leads to us clinging to this has to be the right answer. I don't know what I'm doing. So-and-so said, do this. Like, this is what gives me structure in life. So I, I'm going to do it that way. Just that. <laughs> you know what? I think that's a really big thing. And you're a perfect parent until you have kids. Uh -huh. Until you're in the thick of it and you know exactly what it means to be a parent, you've got all these ideas. You've got all these concepts. Maybe you've even done research. But the thing is, coming back to that idea that there's textbook and then there's reality, and we're here to marry the two with beautiful music. Yes. It's, it's, it's just, I, I think that it's, it could also be a function of the baby blues and or postpartum depression. I mean, I personally had postpartum depression and it manifested as anxiety. It was a boulder on my chest. And I really wanted to follow every piece of advice I got to the letter because it gave me a sense of control in a world where I didn't have controls. You know, I wanted these kids for so long and then I got them two at a time. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it was just a lot. And you think that you know what parenting is and then there are these kids and then you want to just follow all the advice because you can't screw them up. You can't ruin the children. Don't break the kids. Yeah. And you, you mentioned you struggled with infertility. Yeah. I mean, that's right. There it is right there. You wanted this for so long. I imagine there's so much more pressure in that situation. There really is because the idea of parenthood is not the same as the reality of parenthood. And when you have built up this concept of parenthood over the four years that I spent not getting pregnant and trying to get pregnant, it really does. I think that's a major reason why it puts people at risk for postpartum depression. There's a definite link between infertility and postpartum depression. There's also a link 
between traumatic delivery and multiple pregnancy. I mean, there are a lot of links there, but I do think that there's a link between postpartum depression and anxiety and wanting to follow these rules to the letter. You want to do the absolute best for your kids. You don't know specifically what that is because you haven't studied nutrition specifically. And so you're just going to grab onto any piece of advice that sounds reasonable or sounds authentic. How much do you think the sort of collective pressure to raise healthy eaters, have a kid who loves vegetables, have a kid who loves kale chips and sushi, plays into the very beginning of starting solids and perhaps, you know, the, the evolution of baby led weaning as we know it now as some kind of alternative to ensure we get that outcome? And then my question is, why is it so important to us to get that outcome? Yeah. it's a really interesting dynamic in parenthood right now because there's the aspect of raising healthy eaters and then there's the aspect of showing to everyone else in the world that you are raising healthy eaters and in that argument there's a definition of healthy and as anti-diet dietitians our definition of health is more comprehensive it doesn't only include physical health but it includes mental and emotional health as well and We're seeing that increasing in the population. We're seeing that philosophy really start to grab hold, and it's wonderful to see that. But there still is a big faction of the population who sees health as physical, and they might be tempted to go the kale chips and what was the other sushi? I always see parents bragging about their kids loving sushi. And I I don't want to be putting down any parents who do. If, I, oh, my gosh. My, neither of my kids will eat sushi. But if they did, believe me, those pictures would be all over the place. But for some reason, sushi is always the go-to. I don't know why. I think it's because it's kind of hoity-toity. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, you can go and get supermarket sushi. That's available. But if you take your child to a restaurant and they eat sushi, it's kind of like eating smoked salmon or caviar or like these are fancy things. And if your child is eating them, then that means that they have a very highly developed palate, which is it's kind of like bragging about your child's IQ, you know, like, look how fancy my child is. Does it go back to look, surely I have done something right, haven't I? I cultivated a child who likes sushi and I don't like believe me, for the various things that my kids do excel at, and eating sushi is not one of them, I have that drive. Like, I don't want to, to you know, say I'm like some transcended parent who, you know, doesn't. But I think it goes back to all the pressure we feel, you know, that your kid should be in the honors program and eating the sushi and the vegetables and, you know, the star of the basketball team or whatever it is. And some of those things might be healthy in terms of encouraging your child to excel at school. I think we would, I would always want to see it done in um, an authoritative manner versus authoritarian, which I'm sure is uh, what we'll get to in feeding. But when it does get come into play with feeding, in my experience, it's really easy for parents to get all tripped up because the child who eats all the vegetables and the kale and the sushi, I don't know, that is not necessarily the goal, right? The child who honors his or her appetite and is able to reach adulthood and become an intuitive eater, to me, that's the goal. I don't know if that's anybody listening's goal. I don't know if that's your pediatrician's goal. I I want you to do some reflection and figure it out if that is your own goal. But we can kind of get off track when we focus too much on the, the what of feeding and not the how, which is what we're here to talk about, right? That's definitely true. And I think that there's also some amount of sushi being kind of the opposite of sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, because oh, yeah. we think of like kids like sweets, fine. You know what? I like sweets. You like sweets. We talked yes. about that. <laughs> but sushi represents um, different kinds of flavors and it represents different kinds of textures. And maybe on some subconscious level, these parents are saying, look, my kid is eating not ice cream. Mm-hmm. Look, my okay. kid is eating not gummy bears. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, I try, at least in my Instagram stories, I try to be um, very forward with all the candy my kids are eating, which is a lot. We, I honestly, we have dessert every day after dinner and like you and I are recording this right after Easter, they got big Easter baskets full of candy. And, you know, I, I try and put that out. And then the other day, my, my daughter ate nothing but asparagus for dinner. Right. So like I try to put both of those out there. But, you know, 
I could be only putting up the picture of her eating asparagus, right? And going, oh, look at her. My kid loves asparagus. I don't know if I'm getting off track here, but it is important to see both sides of that. And, and if your kid loves sushi, please put up a picture. I'll probably heart it. It's going to be adorable. We should, yeah. all, we should all put up cute pics of our kids eating, whether it's yeah. sushi or asparagus or ice cream, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. But yeah, that's not the goal. The what is not the goal. Yeah. So let's talk about that as it relates to infant feeding, because there is a lot of focus on what with infant feeding. And honestly, as a nutrition professional, when I look at the data in terms of like what their iron requirements are or, you know, what exposing them to certain flavors at certain stages of infancy will do, I am inclined to basically push certain foods that are going to meet these kids' nutritional needs and are going to give them the best shot at becoming healthy eaters. And I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> What's your take on all that? I mean, because we don't, we don't just feed babies pure applesauce and nothing else. We do prioritize the nutrition here. Yeah, I think it's important first for parents to understand this whole food before one thing. Food before one is just for fun. No, it's not. It really does have a lot going on for it. And the, the primary source of nutrition before one is breast milk or formula. But food is there for texture and for taste. And this is the golden window where your child just thinks everything coming at their face is amazing. And so you should just feed them a lot of different things so everything becomes familiar. But beyond that, like we really have a lot of hard and fast rules. You know, we look at the baby led weaning versus purees, and hopefully I'm not jumping the gun on this question, but. No, we, let's get to it. We've been talking for 20 minutes. We have to talk about this, which is the subject of the podcast episode. Yeah, maybe we should do that. So, okay. So I'm coming out with this book that's a nourishing baby food cookbook, and it is puree focused. I published a book last year this time that's stage by stage baby food cookbook. And that one is baby led weaning focused. Why did I put out two books with two different philosophies? Because it's one philosophy. Because it's feed your child. And the big thing that really gets my craw and I'm shaking my fist in the air um, like an old curmudgeon leaf. Um, <laughs> The thing that really gets me is when people really make up these rules. And the one that, that gets me the most is if you've chosen baby led weaning, you must start baby led weaning at six months or readiness signs. You must only do baby led weaning. And God forbid your child have a spoonful of applesauce. You have to go back to breast or bottle for two weeks and then start over again. This is ridiculous. It is not based in anything at all. It has absolutely no basis in truth. And we as adults enjoy purees. We enjoy applesauce. We enjoy mashed potatoes and stews and ice cream and pudding and pudding. <laughs> <laughs> so what I would love to share about this is, um, so I'm an advocate for baby led weaning. I teach baby led weaning classes. I used it with one of my kids and not the other, which is interesting to have kind of that, that benchmark. My older daughter was fully puree fed. But I, as an advocate for baby led weaning, I'm a member of a professional organization all about baby led weaning. And we had a webinar basically with Jill Rapley, who is the author of the book, Baby Led Weaning. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I get to ask, I get to ask Jill Rapley a question. What am I going to ask? What am I going to ask? And I asked her, Exactly that. Like, what is up with the militancy? Is this what you intended? And she's a little bit older. She's British. I got the sense that she doesn't spend too much time on Facebook, although I didn't ask her that specifically. And so basically, she didn't really know about these crazy Facebook groups that do exactly what you described. And she was like, oh, no, no, that's not what I intended at all. And I just, she didn't necessarily invent baby led weaning, but she did put a name to it and write a book in, I think, 2008, which got everybody going crazy about baby led weaning in the last 10 years or so. And I just thought it was really great that the founder of baby led weaning herself was not on board with the militancy that some groups have adopted in terms of, of baby led weaning. But I think that the reason that people ascribe to that it's a lot like religion, honestly, in terms of you're fumbling around in the dark here. If somebody would just make some rules, <laughs> that then, then you could point to the rules and say, I'm doing it right, basically. I know I'm living my good life because I'm doing it right. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. It really yeah. is very dogmatic. And, and as a religious person myself, I can say, not to speak for all religious people, just to let your audience know that we're not bashing religion. Yeah. It's yeah. just drawing parallels where people really do feel more confident when there are guidelines. But the guidelines have gotten out of hand. We went from simple guidelines that are meant to support and encourage parents to guidelines that end up causing more stress and anxiety around the feeding relationship. And when I'm advising someone on baby led weaning versus purees, my first question is about their comfort level. Because as far as what's best for the child, it's best for the child to be fed by a parent who is calm and confident. Yeah. And so yeah. whether you're doing strict baby led weaning or strict purees or a combination method, which is actually what I advise is the combination method, as long as you as the caretaker can feel confident, you're probably on the right track. I mean, the hard and fast rules that do actually exist are choking hazards, no honey before one, including in baked goods, and limited salt. Yeah. And then you want to watch for the temperature. Of course, you don't want to give your kid a steaming hot bowl of curry, although that yeah. really sounds amazing right now for me. <laughs> but, but the thing is that there are those hard and fast rules. And then you go with, look at your culture, look at your background, look at what your grandparents did, or maybe your great grandparents, if you know that, and, and do what works for you within those limited guidelines. And you can go back and forth. You know what? You can do baby led weaning at home. And then maybe if your child is at daycare, they do purees there. And guess what? That's okay. Mm -hmm. And if you're out and you have a pouch, fine. So you do baby led weaning other times and you're going to use a pouch because that's what you have and it's convenient and it's less messy. Yeah. And you know what? It does provide some good nutrition. There are so many different ways to look at it. And we can't say this is the way. Mm -hmm. We have to say, which way is going to make you more confident? You know, it's kind of like some people just really don't like to drive on the freeway. Fine. So take the surface streets. Guess <laughs> what? You're still going to get there. I'm talking <laughs> about you. Yeah. I'm talking about you. Guess what? You'll take the surface streets. Yep. You'll get there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what's so important here is, you know, starting solids, especially if it's your first kid, we're, we're starting the 17 and a half years of you feeding this kid. It's just more so than what is making it into their bellies is what is going on with the person who's going to be spearheading this feeding relationship for the rest of the child's childhood. And is that person... You, the mom listening, I know your, your babies don't listen to this podcast. You listen to this podcast. Are you confident, as you're saying, Yafi, in basically setting up habits that are going to not only nurture your child's relationship with food, and I think that's where you and I and our advice come in, but are going to be manageable for your life, right? Like there's no point in your baby adoring curry, if we're just going to use that example, if you never cook it and you don't live within delivery distance of a restaurant that has it. So yeah, you could brag on Instagram that your baby loves curry, but like if that's not something that you and your partner eat, then, you know, I almost feel like we missed an opportunity to expose the baby to flavors that you and your partner do eat, because that's going to be the long-term goal. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And you know what? And and if your baby likes curry, maybe that's an impetus to start including sure. curry in your meal planning. But but if that's not a possibility for you, then sure, focus on the foods that make a more regular appearance in your house. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's one of the things that I think is interesting in terms of like what foods are best for baby. Like I have a, a slide in my presentation that says top sources of iron and it's beef and chicken and, and all that. And then it's mussels and lamb. And it's like, well, don't go out and buy some if you're not going to cook, you know, whatever it is, mussels as a regular food in your home. Don't get me wrong. A baby's iron intake from food, solid food, not breast milk or formula is very important. But if we focus so much on, well, I have to serve this with every meal or else he won't be getting it enough uh, of what he needs, then we are moving away from raising the kid up to enjoy the foods of the family, basically. Right. That's, that's very true. And you know what? I'm going to take that in a direction that's been really popular lately. Cultural diets. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you're following, let's say you're from a different culture. I'm from a different culture. Let's say mm -hmm. I'm from a different culture. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at these foods that we're supposed to introduce kids. But you know what? I want to make shakshuka. Mm -hmm. Great. You know what? 
don't follow a list of foods that you should be introducing to your child on certain timeline and ignore your cultural foods and ignore foods that link you to other people in your community and your ancestry and your your faith even. You know, look at the foods that you eat and think about how you can include your baby in those food experiences. Yeah, because there's a danger there of demonizing the cultural foods. When we look at very basic resources on best foods for baby, or even what's in, you know, the baby food aisle in terms of, well, it's going to be pureed sweet potatoes and apples. And, you know, there might not really be a lot of, you know, seasonings and flavors. But we have to, as parents, realize that what, we, what you and I have been talking about, about there being no best way. We have to embrace that. And then we have to empower ourselves to believe that we can do this with our own family's foods. And, and this is where a lot of the work I do, we're trying to get the kid to eat more and the parents trying to eat less. And it's like, well, <laughs> if either the baby ne- or the child never sees you eat, that's one problem. Or if you have been taught that the foods that you grew up eating are not good enough somehow and you're trying not to eat those and you're trying to eat more of the whatever it is uh, uh, you know the power bowls with like the roasted sweet potatoes and the dressing and the quinoa it sounds delicious but seriously that's really high maintenance i'd rather get that at a restaurant where someone else is i get that at a restaurant all the time i have never made it at home i do hear i don't want to completely discredit i do hear that it's kind of like a taco bar or something like you just everybody throws whatever they want in the bowl i have never done it because it just honestly doesn't appeal to me that much And, and that's my jam you know i cook really basic stuff like we have sandwiches and we have tacos and my husband um, he grew up in the south and i grew up on the east coast we have different foods that we grew up with and i want to be honoring that i didn't grow up eating sandwiches honestly let me tell you when it's sandwich night he's so excited and we eat him with fritos actual fritos out of a bag if we don't have fritos we're not having sandwiches tonight because the meal is not complete, right? And it's it can be a little scary to think about like doing baby led weaning. Well, you wouldn't give your baby Fritos, probably. Although it's not officially on the choking hazard list, <laughs> right, but I would right. venture to uh, pro- <laughs> proactively yeah, include right. that. <laughs> it is salty, but you know, like I have given my two year old Fritos. When I knew she was old enough to manage it in her mouth, because that's part of the family meal. So anyway, we haven't even talked about really like the differences between puree feeding and baby led weaning. Do you have thoughts on this? (laughs) You know what? I think that if you come at it with an open mind, there's a whole lot of overlap. So I mentioned some foods that adults like to eat that are pureed. So let's go with the mashed potato example, because that's starting to sound good. If you you haven't realized this, I have not had lunch. So... (laughs) (laughs) me with my curry and my shakshuka and my mashed potatoes. So here's the thing. There are different ways to serve mashed potatoes. If you're going for a straight traditional puree method, you're going to take the mashed potatoes on a spoon. You are going to have your baby in the high chair, hopefully with their feet and their hips supported at 90 degrees and their knees. And you're going to bring the spoon toward your baby's mouth as they lean forward and open. And we're going to get into that with responsive feeding. That's a sign that the child is ready to eat. So you're going to do that. The child will take the mashed potatoes off the spoon and swallow them or, you know, spit them in your face, whatever, but um, paint the walls or whatever. So (laughs) if you're doing mashed potatoes in a baby-led weaning type of way, you're going to load the spoon with mashed potatoes and put it in front of the child. They pick up the spoon and feed themselves. This is the same food. Once it gets in the mouth, it's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so what is the difference leading up to that point? It's the comfort of the parent. I mean, if you're sitting there watching your child lift up a spoon and you are on edge and you are exuding anxiety, Mm -hmm. that child will pick up on it. They will link that meal possibly mashed potatoes specifically, or possibly the act of eating in general with anxiety. And either they're going to be anxious every time they eat, or they're just going to not like mashed potatoes because they associate it with anxiety. And that, by the way, holds true for fighting at the table, fighting with a spouse over specific foods that could cause your child to not be interested in that food because of that association. Anyway, back on track. Uh, So when you're doing purees, You generally go with a stage-by-stage type of thing where you're starting with very thin purees, going to thicker purees, going to chunky purees, and working your way up to finger foods, which happens around nine months. 
if you're going with a baby led weaning philosophy, you could follow that same trajectory with the child feeding themselves, or you could just start giving the baby food that you are eating, controlled for choking hazards, temperature, honey, and salt content. And you could go, there are so many, that's the simplest explanation. And there are so many ways you can go with that. I think that's really important that you brought up uh, the issue of anxiety because um, so in my education, like my classes I teach on baby led weaning, I talk a lot about how research shows us that baby led weaning is no more dangerous than puree feeding. And it is even potentially, jury's still out, slightly safer in terms of if a, a baby might be more likely to choke if they never learn to manage the chunkier textures that you would have with actual solid food. So you can look at the data all day long and say, your baby is no more likely to choke on this food than purees, right? But the perceived anxiety of my baby has a piece of blank in his mouth and the worst thing on this planet that could happen is that my baby chokes and dies. (laughs) If you are a person for whom that is likely to be the case, and we also know that there's nothing wrong with puree feeding, then perhaps puree feeding is better than you. Now you're going to cross the bridge of feeding actual solids at some point. And, you know, what can you do? Like, do you need to build up your confidence and that your baby can manage it at nine months and 10 months and things like that? That's another issue. But yeah, it's just like what you're saying, what is going to be the best situation for the parent? And I think we get tripped up in believing that it stops picky eating or the food is fresher because it's not coming out of a jar or or whatever. So it has this air of being the healthier choice. And I would hate to see a parent powering through the anxiety on that because of a misconception that this is the healthiest thing to do when it isn't. Right. But that comes back to the definition of health being broader than just physical and the goal of feeding being open and not just sushi and kale chips. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So talk to us about your latest book because it is a puree book. And I I have a review copy. I looked at, I go, I'm, I'm over here standing ovation. If I had the time and energy to write a book, this is the book I would have written. Everybody go buy Yafi's book, (laughs) but tell us (laughs) what, um, what the concept is in the book and what advantage of using this particular method. And then maybe pepper in some stuff from your old book, because that one was about baby led weaning. Well, and the truth is that I did pepper in some stuff from the old book into this one because I just really believe in a combination feeding. And I do want parents to feel confident. So if you know what, and and before I get into that, if you are a parent who wants to do baby led weaning, but is not comfortable with it, Mm -hmm. start with purees and seek out a a meeting with a dietitian or attend one of Diana's courses (laughs) because you can switch. I mean, as Diana mentioned, you're going to switch eventually. You're going to switch over to solid food from purees at some point. It's okay to start with what's making you comfortable while you do more research, while you get more comfortable with another method. That is fine, regardless of what the checkout person at Whole Foods has to say about it. Okay? Uh, okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so this book, Nourishing Baby Food Cookbook, is all about homemade baby food. And guess what? You do not have to make your own baby food. I thought you might say that. (laughs) This this is a book for people who want information on the puree method of introducing food to their baby. And it also has recipes. Okay, fine. It has 100 recipes. They're not all puree because you're not sticking with purees throughout that child's life. It goes up to 18 months plus. So at the 9-10 month mark, switches over to solid food. And so it, you know, it's good to have all of my books, obviously. Yes, uh, clearly every last one of them paid for They all retail. work together like a puzzle and you must have all of them and read them and highlight them and stuff. Yes. So, but so the thing is that you, you start off with purees and in this book, it does start with thin purees and then advance in texture. It gets more challenging as the baby gets older before switching to finger foods and family meals. And the previous book was more, we're starting from the beginning with family food. And so those are just the two different methods and they're both okay. And you can switch back and forth. It is not going to confuse your baby. Mm -hmm. It might confuse your parents, but that doesn't matter because you know what? They're confused by all of our choices anyway, right? One more thing. So just really, 
it's all about compassion. And the books that I've written, I've written with compassion for the parent and just encouraging the parent and following the method that gives more confidence to them and helps them feel like they're doing the right thing. There is no better feeling in the world than feeling like a good parent. And that's what we want for our audience. Whether you're doing baby led weaning or purees, that's what we want for you. We want you to feel like a good parent, you know, for a minute at least. Absolutely. And I, um, in my baby led weaning classes, I put a visual on the screen, which is a high chair with three toys. And I say, let's say your baby pushes the rubber duck off and only wants to chew on the little crunchy, you know, looks like a bumblebee thing. And, you know, doesn't even look at the third toy. Do you feel like a bad parent because they pushed the rubber duck off the high chair? You'd be like, he's a baby. He pushed the toy off the high chair. So I, I use this as an analogy. If you have lovingly crafted uh, a recipe from Yafi's book and you're so excited <laughs> to, you know, expose your baby to these flavors and he's like, Meh. you know, it, we can get that sense of being a good parent because the baby liked it. Right. And we have to remember that as far as your baby knows at this stage, it, it might as well be a toy. It might as well, you know, be a bottle of soap, right? Like in terms and, and, and what you're doing, the thing to be a, a good parent is th that experience of putting the baby in the high chair, sitting with your baby, whether you're handing a spoon to their mouth or just doing baby led weaning, the eye contact, the, you know, mimicking the chewing motions. That's the, the good parent here, right? right? Not did the baby eat it. But it's frustrating. <laughs> That's exactly it. And you know what? That That is the part about being a good parent. And the number one way that you can encourage healthy eating in your child is to sit down. Just, <laughs> just sit down. Just sit down. You know what? The dishes can wait. Sit yeah. with your child. It's a really convenient thing to put your kid in the high chair next to the the sink yeah. and just wash the dishes or do the laundry or talk to a friend. And you know what? Sometimes you want to do that. Fine. We are mm -hmm. all about compassion for parents on this podcast, right, Diana? Yep. <laughs> and I have definitely done the high chair thing. Definitely. Yeah, we've all done that. But if for the most part, you can give your child something to eat and then sit down and eat it with them, mm -hmm. that's the number one thing that you can do to promote healthy habits. Yeah. Not only are you modeling the physical aspect of eating, as as you mentioned, Diana, the chewing, seeing how chewing happens, but you're showing them how to behave at the table and how their company is valuable to you. Mm -hmm. And you're increasing the bond. A friend showed me this picture of her. I think that child was about 16 or 18 months old at the time, sitting in the high chair, and she gave the child a cup of yogurt. And I really want this video. Maybe she'll give me permission to share it. But the child sitting in the high chair starts slathering this yogurt all over her body and even checking to make sure she got every little bit. <laughs> so this woman shows me this video and says, what do you make of this? Mm. I know that this baby has two older siblings and that those two older siblings were in virtual learning at the time when this child was being fed. And I said, do you ever give her yogurt with the older kids? I don't think I have. Okay, next question. When's the last time she saw you get out of the shower and put on lotion? <laughs> I love At this it. Point, she just started laughing because that little pot of yogurt looks like cream. It looks like <laughs> lotion. Okay, so this kid, this kid was modeling the behavior that she saw. But that yeah. behavior was her mother putting lotion on right after the shower yes. rather than sitting down and eating it. Because you know what? This kid did not know that was food. Oh my gosh. This is the best example I've ever heard. Great. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And it, it, so it's, hard. it's telling. You know, I can, I can say until I'm blue in the face, sit your baby with the family, you know, model that you're eating the same foods. And this actually doesn't matter if it's a baby or if it's, you know, an older kid with selective eating model that you're eating the same foods. And that's a textbook thing, right? I can say that I say that in every consult that I do. But this really is giving us true evidence that the kids are paying attention. Because if they're paying attention just a couple of times when you're coming out of the shower, well, they're definitely paying attention. You have a family dinner every night, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's really awesome. So let's let's use this to to bridge into responsive feeding because part of that is going to be the relationship that the kids have with their parents sitting around the table. So responsive feeding, I feel like I I mean I never heard this term in nutrition school, right? No. Uh, it's definitely something that has been best practice for a while, but I feel like maybe the last five years it's kind of been getting more attention as something that is making its way into consumer vernacular. And, and that people like you and me are talking about more in the work that we do. So Yafi, expert on child feeding. What is responsive feeding? Go. Responsive feeding is hiding in the closet and eating Kit Kats. Oh. Yes, or Twizzlers. Twizzlers. <laughs> mm, definitely on the Twizzlers side of the Twizzlers versus Red Vines game. Yes. Uh, or in my case, Snickers, because my, my kids are allergic to nuts. Ooh. And so we, we, I mean, we get Snickers for Halloween or whatever. So somebody's got to eat them, but I can't eat them in front of my kids. <laughs> obviously, obviously. So the idea between behind responsive feeding is that you are feeding your child, you are having a food experience with your child where your child's biology leads the way. So their hunger, their fullness, their interest in the food, their interest in each individual bite. And that's an umbrella term that could be applied to puree method or baby led weaning. And it's in line with division of responsibility. Some of the, the literature on division of responsibility says that you should start at age two. Hmm. And I'm not sure if you've already published one on division of responsibility, but the breakdown for your audience, just because we should probably say this every time we put information out there, is that the parent is in charge of what's on the table, the location of the meal, and the time of the meal. And ideally, the location and the time are fairly consistent, although nobody's against picnics. Mm -hmm. And the child is in charge of how much and whether they eat. So, so some resources say that starts at age two. I say that starts from age zero, day okay. one, yeah. because right. you are either breastfeeding that child or feeding with a bottle. And that child is going to latch to the breast or bottle when they're hungry. They are going to turn away, clamp their mouth shut when they're full. And that is the basis of responsive feeding. So fine with babies, what you're going to do is burp them and then offer it again. And if they don't take it, that's fine, but you offered it. Let me tell you, that's super fun with twins. <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> Uh, so, but that's the beginning of responsive feeding. Your child opens their mouth for the nipple, whether it be attached to a body or a bottle, and they close their mouths and you don't force it. You don't pinch their cheeks and shove the bottle in and look at the tick marks and determine when that child should be done based on the ounces. You let that child's body determine what they're eating or how much they're eating. And you're feeding on demand which changes a little bit later. At the beginning, we feed on demand. So when that child cries, you offer the breast or bottle. That's you being responsive. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect because sometimes they're crying because they have a dirty diaper and maybe you're offering the bottle. They're not going to take it. They're going to hold out for you to recognize that they smell like, you know. <sighs> we know. Yeah, you know. So that's the beginning of responsive feeding. It's just the idea that your child understands hunger and fullness and does things to communicate those experiences to you. As they get older, those signals change a little bit. You know, like when they're when they're a toddler, maybe their signal is smashing their hands on the table and screaming at you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I really encourage starting with baby sign language so that you can feed responsibly a little bit more efficiently when that child signs time to eat. And I have seen a one-year-old do this. I think I've seen younger kids do that as well. Mm -hmm. um, you're able to respond to that. And that's what responsive feeding is, responding to your child's cues. So when you're doing purees, responsive feeding is making sure that your child is comfortable and sitting in a place that's appropriate, sitting down with your child. And rather than doing the airplane game, open up for the airplane, which is a distraction, you say, hey, check it out. We're having sweet potatoes. You want some? And the child leans forward, opens their mouth either makes eye contact with you or looks at the spoon and watches the spoon enter their mouth. Then you don't give another bite until that bite has been processed. <laughs> you're not feeding too quickly and you're not feeding too slowly. You're watching for that child's cues. With baby led weaning, responsive feeding comes a little bit more automatically because you are putting down the food and the child is entirely in charge of what goes in their mouth and the pace at which it goes in their mouth. 
And so they're in charge of their own responses and you get to sit back and enjoy your own meal. But you still have the responsibility of sitting there with the child, making eye contact, talking about the food a little bit. You know, it would be unresponsive to plop the child in a high chair with a bunch of avocado slices or whatever and go wash the dishes. Not that we haven't all done that when we needed it. Yeah. So, and right. And ideally, 100% of meals are responsive. Mm-hmm. And then there's reality. And we understand that there's a bit of dissonance between the two. That sometimes it's yes. just not going to work out that way. But yeah, you're, you're not being responsive if you're not in a place where you can respond. And when you mentioned talking about food, someone's probably saying like, oh, how do I talk to my 10-month-old about food? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. going to be a one-way conversation. Yes. That's fine. It's yeah. okay because this is the same type of conversation you might have while walking through the grocery store. Check out this bell pepper. It's red. When it's raw, it's crunchy. It grows on mm-hmm. a vine. Do you know what else grows on a vine? Did you know that this bell pepper got on a truck to come here? Yeah. And you can, like, you're going to have a one-way conversation, but that's what it can sound like. Yeah. And what I think is really cool, and I do encourage that... In my work with older kids, I'm often encouraging the parents to scale back on the food talk a little bit in terms of it can, mm-hmm. it can come off as pressure. Now, sure. if this infant has no issues, then yeah, that, that is super fun to talk about. Oh, it's crunchy. I'm going to put it in my mouth and oh, 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 munchy, munchy, munchy. You know, that's, this is, I mean, we're talking about a, a less than 12 month old baby. Like this is how you communicate with them. Right. Um, but uh, I have a video that I show in my baby led weaning classes of my own daughter eating and she's eating steamed broccoli with like you know, olive oil and salt and garlic. And she's really munching it, but her dad and her sister are just being ridiculous. And they're, you know, they're going back and forth saying ridiculous things. And you hear that audio in the background. And so nobody's talking about food. Right. And her eyes are on them and she's, you know, bouncing, like, you know, she's as, as much a part of this conversation as she could be at seven months old. And she is eating. And I always liken that to if you and I were out to dinner in a restaurant, you know, we would be talking about other things. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. so there's, with I think with either purees or baby led weaning, there's going to be a, a window where talking about this food is a big deal because this is a brand new thing in the same way when they took their first steps you would applaud and you would say you did such a good job and yay, yay, yay. Like once that, once a two-year-old's walking, it's, it, it ain't no thing. right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the, the goal here is to advance the child to the point where they are a member of the family meal, just like the adults are and the older kids are, uh, and everyone's eating and everyone's enjoying their food and everyone has the right to eat as much or as little as they want to. And we're all having this relationship of this is what our family does. And that is one of the things that really fosters the healthy relationship with food and for the kids is the whole family coming together in this way. Sure. Yeah, that's definitely a great point. And I put out a lot of information on different ways that you can interact with your kids over food. But mm-hmm. it's really true that you shouldn't do all of them. If I give you a list of 50 different food-based activities to do with your child, you're going to do like one in a yeah. day because yeah. it does come across as pressure if you do too much. Yeah. And of course, if I'm sitting with a seven-month-old who's eating, I can't think of what to, to say. I'm going to talk about food because that's what I talk about. <laughs> yeah, but, right. but it is a good point that, yeah, we... You know, other people who are not me do have other things that they talk about. And you should certainly introduce a variety of food to your child and introduce a variety of conversational topics as well. Yeah. So I would love to circle back to um, one of the first things you mentioned in talking about responsive feeding. Let's say a one-year-old is signing time to eat. Now, part of the division of responsibility is that the parent is in charge of the time to eat. And this is the transition that we're making from breast or bottle feeding on demand into toddlerhood. It may be why some resources say true DOR doesn't start until age two. So I don't want parents to get the impression that responsive feeding is always accommodating your children's needs when they say, I want food. Sounds like a weird thing to say, because like, we we don't really want to be denying kids food. But that's why we have the schedule. Yes. So we have the schedule. And, and it's really important. I think this is a big point that is misunderstood by much of the public is that we love intuitive eating but it's not for kids. Yeah, Kids need that structure because intuitive eating as a model is wonderful for adults. And if you don't know what it is, go look it up, go look up the principles. That's the ultimate goal is to have a child who's an intuitive eater. But when they're younger, they need guidance to grow that direction. You know, expecting your child to be an intuitive eater is kind of like giving them a 
a copy of the Wall Street Journal when they're five and say, hey, here, learn how to read. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. need to learn the alphabet. They need to learn the pacing and vowels versus consonants and grammar structure. And so this is the equivalent of that. We're giving them those guidelines and teaching them how to eat and how to understand how the mind and body connect. That's our job as parents is to have those guidelines. What I really like, and this this is possibly unpopular uh, opinion, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. While the parent is in charge of the schedule, sometimes you have hiccups that are going on that are normal in childhood. You're going to have sickness that changes appetite. You're going to have milestones and growth spurts. And I think it's okay if it's 15 minutes before a meal and the child signs to you time to eat and you think, hey, you know, maybe there's a growth spurt. It's okay to shift the schedule just a little bit to accommodate that. But the child is not in charge. If the child is at a point where they can understand signing, they might be able to understand a visual type of schedule where you can say, well, right now we're playing and we're going to eat soon. Mm -hmm. And you say that to them. And so maybe they say 15 minutes early, they want to eat. And so you play for five more minutes and then you eat. You're still doing it 10 minutes early to account for the possible growth spurt, but you are still in charge of that as the parent. What I found really helpful was not only when my twins were going through a growth spurt and they were having an all out tantrum, I had no idea. And they both started signing eat. Oh, Oh, it was such a relief. But when they're at the table, sometimes they get cranky, especially if they're just at the beginning of developing their vocabulary. And you don't know, are they cranky because they want to drink? Are they cranky because they want more food? Are they cranky because they're done and they run out of patience and they need to be taken out of the high chair? Mm -hmm. And that's where sign language really comes in. And responsive feeding is great because it gives them the ability to communicate with their grown-up, why they're getting cranky. Because you have a cranky child who's thirsty, maybe you're going to take them out of the seat and you're not fixing the issue, or maybe they want more food. It's it's a great way to communicate and a way for you as the adult to be more responsive. It gives you the tools to be more responsive at a time when they're not developmentally appropriate for having a full vocal vocabulary. Yeah, I totally agree. And because that's what I was thinking when you were talking about moving up the feeding time by 15 minutes. If we weren't to do that, we would be following DOR, but we would not be responsive to our mm-hmm. individual child's needs in that point. Now, I find that maybe a, a one-year-old uh, isn't smart enough to figure this out, but a two-year-old or so, when they learn that word hungry, they will use it to get goldfish, right? Sure. (laughs) And so as the parents, we need to be responsive in multiple ways. One way to be responsive is, hmm, coming up on actual mealtime, you know, this child might be going through a growth spurt or, or maybe it's because they didn't eat very much at the previous meal. Yes, I am going to move it up 15 minutes. But another way to be responsive is, hmm, we just finished eating. Now they're saying, I'm so hungry. I want goldfish. <laughs> You're being responsive in demonstrating to your kid that there is a schedule and that there will be another meal opportunity. And sure, we can add some goldfish to that meal, but that will be after playtime at XYZ time or whatever it is. Right. And at that point, you can move to a type of visual calendar that's, I I love the, the wedges on the clock. You get a cheap clock from Ikea and you color in the wedges to represent different activity times. And kids at that age can look at that clock and you can use that and say, see, right now it's playtime. And we're going to eat again. Yeah, I love that. And I I think especially now that so many more kids are home all day with just mom uh, or dad, but mostly mom. I think that that is, you know, a really good strategy. And it's something I've definitely been recommending to my clients. And we even we have I'll, I'll put a picture of it online. We have a colorful clock like that ourselves that my kids get a real kick out of. So I, I want to wrap up. But um, tell me a little bit. We've been talking about feeding infants. But tell me if you can in, in a sentence or two. <laughs> Why is this so important? Why do we want to get this? I'm very hesitant to say get this right, but why do we want to go down this path with our infants, looking forward to them becoming bigger children and all the things that are going to go along with that? It's a great question. And I like to start by pointing out to adults, how much time have you spent worrying about your weight? How much time have you spent thinking about your food choices and feeling guilty about your food choices? And do you plan on having your weight on your headstone? Yeah. Or, you know, do you expect someone to say at, you know, God forbid, your funeral, um, she lived a wonderful long life and achieved her goal weight? 
you know, because we, as adults, statistically, most of us have been there that we mm-hmm. have been worried about our food intake and we've had negative emotions associated with our food choices. And when we can raise our kids this way from the beginning, we teach them to enjoy their food experiences on multiple levels. We teach them to enjoy the flavor and the texture and the smell and the sound of their food. We teach them to enjoy bonding over a delicious meal at the table. We teach them that different flavors are important and that we can enjoy different flavors and that that is just another level of enjoying life. And when we can raise our kids from this point on, understanding that food is to be enjoyed and having a positive relationship with food, then that's less mental real estate they're going to be using on food obsession and food guilt and food shame and less time they're going to allow the scale to dictate what kind of mood they're going to be in that day and how their day is going to be and how their week is going. And we can allow them that space to pursue more interesting pursuits that are more important for them and more important for humanity as a whole. Yes, this is great. That is not exactly what I thought you were going to say. As you know, everything you just said is incredibly important to me, but I I think that's really great. And and I also want to kind of encourage parents that the starting solids is part of it, but also (laughs) the media they consume, the way you talk about your body, like those are all other Mm. pieces of it that I will have future podcast episodes about. But we don't, we don't often think about the way we start solids as a tool to help our kids develop resiliency against diet culture. I don't think, honestly, when I started solids with my oldest kid, who's now almost six, wasn't on my mind. And I was a dietitian at the time, you know, and it's only been as I've gotten more invested in all this, that I've realized the connection and done more work. You know, every time I do a consult on a parent of a kid with feeding issues, We don't see it coming, but then we run into the wall of, well, the parent themselves is trying to diet. And well, what does that do to the rest of the relationship that everybody has with food in the house, right? And so Mm -hmm. let's shine a light (laughs) more strongly on not just how starting solids, I I mean, how feeding kids from age six months on up really does, really does play a role. And like I always say, I don't want this to be a why you should show you know, why you should feed your kids in a responsive manner and to help them develop resiliency against diet culture. But I hope anyone listening, I hope this strikes a chord and, you know, is is something that if you hadn't thought about before, maybe it's something that you want to incorporate. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I definitely think it's important. And actually, my most recent two naptime nutritions were focused on the parent's relationship with feeding the child. Mm-hmm. We focus so much on the child and we talk about this in conversations about postpartum depression. The focus is on the mother until the baby comes out and then to heck with the mother, let's focus on the baby. Yeah. And this is just another angle on that. Like, yes, you're choosing to feed your baby, fill in the blank. How are you feeling about that? What is that doing to your relationship with food? How is that affecting you and your food journey? And so I had two different guests on Naptime Nutrition come to discuss that angle and and how, even if you've recovered from an eating disorder or just disordered eating patterns, how raising kids can be super triggering no matter where you are in your recovery process. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, you mentioned Naptime Nutrition, which is your podcast. Yes. Yafi, we're going to wrap up. Tell us more about your podcast and everything else that you do and how we can find you. Yeah, thanks. So Naptime Nutrition is um, my baby. I have I have an extensive video uh, library on YouTube. So you can look up Naptime Nutrition by Baby Bloom Nutrition. Some of those episodes, I think about 50 of those episodes now have gone on podcast. And I am slowly turning those into podcasts, slower since the second half of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> Used to be once a week, is no longer once a week. <laughs> and well, if anyone's in the Phoenix area, Toddler Test Kitchen will be starting up again as soon as it's safe, toddlertestkitchen.net. You can find me at Baby Bloom Nutrition. I'm on Instagram at toddler.testkitchen and on Facebook at Baby Bloom Nutrition and Toddler Test Kitchen AZ. No need to remember all that. I will put the links in the show notes. And of course, I will link to your books as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I did a lot of writing last year and it seems to all be coming together in this spring. That's great. That's super great. Okay. So thank you so much for all your insight today. I really appreciate you taking the time and take care. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. 
Okay, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Yafi. As I mentioned in the introduction, I know just how nerve-wracking starting solids can be, certainly just in general, but especially if you are trying to navigate a past with a disordered relationship with food and you want to set your child up well for having a healthy relationship with food. So Yafi and I talked a whole lot about the how of starting solids with your infant, but we didn't go into too very much detail on the what and the how-tos. So Yafi is actually going to be joining me in the Messy Intersection Podcast Community Facebook group on Tuesday, May 4th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern time for a Facebook Live where we will answer all of your questions about starting solids. And it doesn't matter if this is your first kid or you have older kids and you've done this all before. It doesn't matter if your baby is nine months or four months or zero months. We will be covering it all and I really hope that you will join us. So to do that, and you don't have to attend live, there will be a recording available as well. Just join the Messy Intersection Facebook group. You can search for Messy Intersection Podcast Community on Facebook or you'll find the link in today's show notes. And the second thing I wanted to tell you more about is that through my private practice, I offer coaching for starting solids. So this is a little different from the personalized nutrition assessments that I do, but it is still very much tailored to your individual needs. These are 30 minute video coaching calls that you can schedule at your convenience. And we will just talk about whatever you are struggling with in terms of starting solids. So maybe you want to know more about the ins and outs of baby led weaning, or you want to know some suggestions of what foods to start with and how to adapt the foods that you're already eating for your infant, or if you are struggling with a lot of the healthism surrounding the introduction of solids that is so common and you are doing your own work to heal your relationship with food and starting solids is triggering for you, I get it. I'm here. I want to help. So that service will be linked to in the show notes as well. And once again, thank you for joining me in the messy intersection this week. And until next week, embrace the mess.